0: And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices And my name, of course, is Zach Twomley. If you've never listened to this podcast before, then this is episode 33 of a very long-running project where we detail what happened 100 years ago. Because in case you weren't aware, 100 years ago, people were trying to, well, end the First World War, a task which was easier said than done. And it's not even that easy to say. This is probably one of the most in-depth podcasts you'll find on the interweb. And the reason why we're able to go so in-depth is because I'm able to spend so much flaming time on this show. Don't think I don't enjoy it. I really do love it. But sometimes it's hard to justify spending all this time on your hobby. And that's why it's fortunate that you guys support this podcast so well. Because of the monetary support and the moral support, I'm able to keep on doing this as though it were my job. It brings me in enough of an income for it to be like a part-time job. The other part of my job is spent lecturing in university. You guys have made this dream of mine possible. Pretty much everything I have right now in terms of my career is thanks to this podcast. So if anyone ever tells you podcasting, or history for that matter, is a waste of time, tell them they're a waste of time and then walk away really dramatically and then wait for them to figure it out and see what happens next. Seriously though, this podcast is a listener-supported podcast and I'm able to come to you several times a week specifically because you guys support me so darned well. If you would like to support this podcast monetarily, give a little bit in return for a large bit every month, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. You know it by now. You click on the link in the description below, and if you choose $2, $5, $6, $66, $600 million, it's all the same. It goes to me, and it helps me live. It helps me eat, and payday comes Every single month, which is really nice because when you're doing something like this, and when it can be very hard to get proper advertising revenue, etc, it's really nice to have that money coming in. And of course it means I can produce extra content on top of this Versailles anniversary project. Now a small disclaimer should say that I'm not very good at the moment recording and releasing 1956, simply because in February there's so much stuff to record edit and release, and of course write, for the Versailles Anniversary Project. But rest assured, I will get on top of things in a week or so, and then we'll have four nice big episodes on 1956. In case you weren't aware, because there's a lot of things you may not be aware of because we're doing so much flaming things, 1956 is a two-parter kind of series, where we look at that eventful year in history and detail what exactly happened. The first part of that looked at the Soviet attempt to get rid of Stalin, well, Stalin's memory at least, because he was already dead by 1956, and that resulted in itself in several revolts and several interesting diplomatic things which I believe people should know about. The second part of 1956 is arguably more famous or infamous, depending on who you ask, because it deals with the Suez Crisis, where the British and French schemed with the Israelis to coordinate some kind of conflict so that they could intervene and recoup some lost honour. It contained a whole boatload of diplomacy, some very interesting intrigues. And a lot of, well, it's a great story, let's just say, and you would be well to go and check that out. You can, of course, check out the teaser episodes for 1956 that are released further back in the feed if you want to check out what the story is with that. But otherwise, patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails is the best place to go. Alrighty guys, without any further ado, let's do further. The American army is fighting for you to the end that the high ideals for which America stands may endure upon the earth. To realize the magnitude of the war in which we are involved. France and Italy, between them, have made waste paper of the Treaty and the whole field of international relationships is in perilous confusion. The affairs of the world can be set. Cause we You're listening to the Versailles Anniversary Project, episode 33. Hello and welcome history friends, patrons all, delegates as well, to episode 33 of the Versailles Anniversary Project. In the last few episodes, our narrative focused on the creation of some sort of organised solution for Eastern Europe, and on the convening of a national Assembly at Weimar which was tasked with hammering out the new German constitution and providing the German people with a stable transitional government. As we did so we left the big three behind a little bit. Sorry about that big three but in the next two episodes we return to their mission specifically on the 7th of February where a meeting of the Supreme War Council was being held for the first time in quite a while. As usual, when the Supreme War Council met, the topic at hand was the distribution of troops and the sticky subject of demobilisation. At the same time, the 19-man Commission on the League of Nations, led of course by Woodrow Wilson, worked to hammer out a covenant in time for Wilson's return to the United States on the 13th of that month. It was, as usual, a very busy time. Sorry about that. February itself is a very busy time. And yes, the frequency of episodes in this month is just a little bit insane, but hopefully it won't be like this the entire project, or I will full-blown lose my mind. In any case, there's nothing for us to do but to get straight into it, so I'll now take you all to the afternoon of the 7th of February, 1919. To George Clemenceau's certain relief, It was finally time to talk about Germany. Whether it was the League of Nations, mandates or deputations from Eastern Europe, it must have seemed sometimes like everyone had forgotten why they were there. The goal was to make peace with Germany and to Clemenceau all other things, including the League, were of secondary importance. On this point, Wilson disagreed since he wanted to get the League sorted out first. A compromise of sorts was reached in late January. In the evenings, Woodrow Wilson would meet with the 19-man League of Nations Commission, while during the day, the Council of Ten, or Supreme War Council, depending on the agenda being political or military, would meet. Today, on the 7th of February, the issue of renewing the armistice with Germany was up for debate, and intertwined within this was the issue of demobilisation. The Allies were understandably anxious at the high cost of maintaining so many men for so long. The figures provided by Marshal Ferdinand Foch at the beginning of the meeting revealed just how militarily committed each power was, even though the war was supposedly in its twilight phase. Foch read from a report compiled by the Supreme War Council from a late January meeting where he had been present, and which had been set two tasks, the first being to provide a figure of the available Allied troops by the 31st of March, when it was believed the final treaty with Germany would be signed, and the second to explain what each power planned to do after the 31st of March if a peace was not signed. In case you were wondering, no, the Treaty of Versailles was not signed on the 31st of March. The Supreme War Council which drew up these calculations had in fact miscalculated the ending of the war by... ah, just about three months. Again, reading the minutes of these meetings were provided with an invaluable picture of the Allied expectations and it gives us a chance to marvel once more at precisely how... Unprepared they were. Foch introduced the Supreme War Council meeting on the 26th of January, saying, The object of that meeting was to determine, with the best possible accuracy, the situation of the Allied armies on the 31st of March 1919, such as will result from the measures taken by each government for demobilisation and repatriation, and also to consider what further provisions could be made given these measures. Then Foch provided details of the strength of the four Allied powers. First, the French, by the 31st of March, would possess just over 1.3 million men still under arms, while the British would have 212,000, the Americans 680,000 and the Italians 225,000. The plans which each of these powers had for events after the 31st of March varied, with the Americans committing to move in more equipment and train more reservists, the British committing to ship more men in from the Dominions, and the French keeping a rotating reserve on hand at all times. The Italians were being a bit cagey about their plans full stop. Foch concluded that according to this report, the future can only be ensured by maintaining the above-mentioned resources in stopping the process of demobilisation. Against this, Woodrow Wilson wanted to know whether Foch believed that the Germans would accept the armistice again, since, don't forget guys, it was renewed every month, because that was just a great idea, or whether pressure could have to be applied for them to actually agree to accept it again. Foch predictably replied that the Germans would have to be coerced, there was just no other way to get through to them, but he added a note which was similar in outlook to that of Clemenceau, namely that the Allies should not demobilise until the Germans had signed the final treaty. If they demobilised too early, then there would not be sufficient pressure in place to guarantee Germany's cooperation. According to the plan which had been written up on the Supreme War Council meeting on the 26th of January, the Allies were relying on Germany to uphold her promises and stick to the terms of the armistice. If she then decided to rebel against this in late March, and the Allies had demobilised a great proportion of their soldiers, then the situation could well become critical. Clemenceau asked Foch if there was any other way to impose the Allied will over Germany and to maintain control over its war-making capabilities. After suggesting an unlikely plan to occupy her factories, Foch replied in the negative. Wilson thanked Foch for his frank reply. Lloyd George asked whether it would be possible to weaken Germany by adhering to a suggestion made in the aforementioned Supreme War Council meeting, that suggestion being to simply confiscate much of Germany's rifles, machine guns and artillery. To this, Foch replied that doing this would weaken Germany, but he did not know how long it would weaken them for until the Germans made their own guns and stuff again. Lloyd George then spelled it out. It would take at least two years for Germany to replace all the military hardware that the Allies proposed to take, even longer if the Allies blocked the delivery of raw materials into the country. Therefore, by seizing these items, Germany would be effectively crippled as a military power. There would be no danger of a renewal of the war, and the demobilization process could proceed. Wilson then asked what the Allies would do if the Germans promised to send their hardware, but then refused to, using the opportunity to test the Allied will. Foch replied that the Allies would have to seize the weaponry by war. Lloyd George was dubious, pressing Foch about whether the Germans would choose war over food, or whether they would hang on to their weaponry during peacetime rather than feed themselves, to which Foch replied unhelpfully that he did not know. Wilson's idea caused further divisions. He suggested that a civilian commission be sent to Germany which would renegotiate the renewal of the armistice and added that a mass demobilisation of the German army would only fill the ranks of the unemployed. This was too far for Lloyd George, who reasoned that the Allies were under no obligation to feed or supply the Germans according to the terms of the armistice. Lloyd George wanted the Germans to reduce the size of their armies since this was the best way to guarantee peace Otherwise, as Lloyd George put it, should Germany mean mischief, she could call together millions of well-trained men, with full complement of officers and non-commissioned officers, thousands of the best guns in the world, and 50,000 machine guns. A fit of anger might come over her. Demonstrating then his distinct lack of information about the situation in Germany, Lloyd George exclaimed that, a tailor named Eberhard is Chancellor. When, in fact, Philip Scheidemann was Chancellor, and the man who they may have been referring to, Friedrich Ebert, was a former saddle-maker, not tailor, and he was President, not Chancellor, Lloyd George added that Germany herself was being endangered by having this temptation left at her door. The temptation being the recalling of these millions of men who were supposedly on standby back to the colours to fight the allies. Knowing what we know about Friedrich Ebert's government and the fact that a national assembly had only been convened the day before the Big Four fulminated over how to plan for a renewal of the war, one could argue without too much difficulty that a renewal of the war was the last thing on the German president's mind. In any case, there were enough military and political threats to keep Ebert's regime occupied, be it in the form of the expanding Poles, the revolutionary Spartacists and fringe elements that continued to lurk, or the paramilitary organisations, like the Freikorps, which Ebert found himself regrettably depending on. Wilson seems to have been the only figure present to have appreciated this, though this did not mean he was well informed of the goings-on in Germany. If he had been, then he would have been able to make a more convincing case, but as it stood on the afternoon of the 7th of February, he was only able to make moral arguments, and this was not at all sufficient for French security or for British guarantees. Georges Clemenceau cut straight to the point by declaring himself not in accord with the American president, before going down a by now familiar rhetorical path to explain why. The French Premier's diatribe, quoted in the minutes of the meeting, is worth quoting from here because Clemenceau explored several issues on the way to his conclusion. That being, Germany must be forced if necessary to accept the terms and she would not respond well to timidity or division among the Allied ranks. Let's look at what Clemenceau said then. It takes a bit of time to get through, but it is worth it, trust me. Clemenceau said, France would be placed in a position of great danger if a firm attitude were not adopted. When the terms of the armistice had been discussed, I had said that only what was necessary should be inserted, in order not to risk a refusal of the terms, but each time it had been agreed to renew the armistice for a period of one month only and this was done with the express object of having an opportunity of imposing new terms adapted to the changing situation. The right to impose new terms or new conditions could not therefore be contested, either on juridical or any other grounds. But I had one other thing to say. The present moment was most decisive, not because it was a question of winning the war, but because there was a danger of losing the fruits of victory. It was essential to act quickly. The forces of the cause of the Allies had not yet diminished appreciably. In the last few weeks, the Germans had become insolent, and recently an incident had occurred. Marshal Foch had been forced to use constraint to bring the German delegates to a meeting. If now ambassadors were to be sent and negotiations were to be begun, much valuable time would be lost, and April would come and find our forces partially scattered. I know the German people well. They become ferocious when anyone retires before them. Was it forgotten that we are still at war? That the armistice was a status of war? The Germans had not forgotten it. I call attention to the case of Poland. The Poles had stopped the further advance of their troops at the request of the Allies, but the Germans had treated a similar request with a blank refusal. The Allies would be exposed to great danger unless they menaced the Germans now. There was a need of a strong Poland. Furthermore, President Wilson had, as one of his 14 points, assumed the obligation of reconstituting Poland. The League of Nations was a very fine conception, but it could not be constituted without nations. As one of the nations concerned, Poland was most necessary as a buffer on the East, just as France formed a buffer on the West. If the Germans were formally told that any attack by them on the East would mean an advance by the Allies on the West, I know that such language would be understood by the Germans, and it would command immediate compliance. Instead of this, it was proposed to buy the goodwill of the Germans, by offering them food and raw materials. A state of war still existed, and any reduction in the appearance of war would be construed as evidence of weakness. I do not wish to starve the Germans, but the blockade must be maintained. If I so far forgot the interests of my country and of Europe as to consent to this proposal, the Chamber would undoubtedly dismiss me, and it would be acting right in doing so. Indeed, this was quite the speech, topped off with the remark that if the Allies did not heed his warnings and went along with the idea of a civilian commission to Germany, then Clemenceau would be relieved of his premiership and the Allies would be forced to deal with another French leader instead. Lloyd-George tried to reach a compromise, suggesting a mixture between Wilson's commission idea and the pressure of force which Marshal Foch believed was necessary. Clemenceau rejected this as well. He simply could not accept the spectacle of a purely civilian commission travelling to Germany to negotiate the armistice terms. The armistice terms were set. Germany must agree to them and to any adjustments which were made. He was not opposed, he said, to adding civilians to Foch's pre-existing military commission, but he could not countenance giving the impression to the Germans that the military pressure had somehow slackened. At its heart, this was a difference in policy and psychology. Clemenceau was adamant that the Germans would exploit any weaknesses they detected and he did not want to take that risk, securing the issue by ramping up the military speak and presenting demands to Germany before offering the carrot. The Americans and to some extent the British wanted to go with the usual carrot and stick approach, if for no other reason than to arrive at a negotiated solution while they possessed the military potential to serve as the hard power, while the blockade and potential of supplies being delivered in the near future could serve as the soft power incentive. The Italians also weighed in to support Clemenceau, with Vittorio Orlando arguing, according to the Minutes, that Whatever was wanted must be demanded in the form of an order and in a loud tone of voice. If a German thought that the one having the mastery showed any signs of hesitation, or failed to look him straight in the eyes, he would concede nothing. The victors must speak to the Germans as the vanquished, it would be undesirable to have to face a refusal, therefore if necessary the conditions might be reduced but whatever was agreed to must be demanded as an order. Lloyd George did not seem to have anticipated Clemenceau's opposition, or for the situation to present such difficulties. The British aim was to reduce the burden of the mobilised soldiers. If the French, or anyone else, wished to add new terms to the armistice, then now was the time to do so and enforce them before the costs of mobilising so many men became unbearable. Furthermore, Lloyd George believed that by taking the arms away from the Germans, there would be no need to maintain such massive armies. By taking away their arms and sending a conditional civilian commission, with military backup where necessary, the Allies would make plain their commitment to peace, but would also show that they were not messing around. He did not contemplate making Europe an armed camp forever, and the best way to prevent this was to disarm Germany. The minutes record Lloyd George's saying. Lloyd George then asked if it was possible to combine Wilson's suggestion with the French proposals and to get Germany's guns, then concerted action might become possible on the Allied side. With this in mind, Lloyd George proposed a second draft of the commission idea, but this was rejected by Clemenceau as well. Clemenceau declared himself opposed to the second draft of the commission idea on the grounds that it alluded to the carrot before the demand was laid down. In Clemenceau's view, this would lead to nothing less than an endless set of negotiations between the Germans and the Allies, where the Germans attempted to wrest the desired carrots before considering the stick. On the contrary, Clemenceau insisted, the Germans should be presented with the Allied demands, with no hint of carrots given, until they then bowed down to the threats and obeyed. Furthermore, Clemenceau feared that the longer this process took, and the longer the Germans had to debate whatever new clauses might be added to the armistice, the weaker the Allied position would become, as the previously agreed demobilization arrangements would come into effect. By the 31st of March, the Allies would be maintaining, still, more than 2 million men, but this would not be sufficient to pressure the Germans if Ebert's government did not believe the Allies had the stomach or the will to fight. The Allies had come on strong from the beginning, and had shown the Germans that they were not going to let up in their demands. As the defeated power, the Germans were in no position to negotiate and certainly not to make requests of their own. Germany could comply or she would be invaded again. Wilson called the Supreme War Council's report on Germany a panic programme and he argued that while it was sensible to confiscate Germany's artillery and her small arms where possible, the act of occupying her major arms factories would only ignite conflict, especially if Allied officers were seen to be in occupation. Lloyd George agreed it could get messy, especially if other Allied armies were required to back up these officers. He thus suggested a compromise, a committee, not a commission, would be created consisting of a representative from the three Allied powers, who had forces on the Western Front, in other words, the Big Three. These three reps would determine what Germany would have to hand over for her disarmament to be considered complete and acceptable. This at least was accepted, and with that, the Supreme War Council meeting dispersed for the evening. It had been a tense, fraught atmosphere, and all involved were no doubt eager to depart. Unfortunately for Woodrow Wilson, there was to be no rest. He returned to House's room for the latest meeting on the League of Nations. Wilson may by now have envied the decisions by Clemenceau and Lloyd George to delegate responsibility for the League to subordinates, because it was late in the day and he had already done an awful amount of talking. He was probably knackered, but the League was his baby, and it is unlikely Wilson would ever have delegated this role to anyone. Just as the League of Nations was to be the centrepiece of his Treaty of Versailles, so too did Woodrow Wilson want to be the centrepiece of the League of Nations commission meetings. House recorded his performance on that day, which was both good and bad, saying We had the usual meeting of the committee of the League of Nations last night. We did not adjourn until eleven p m. Many important articles were adopted. Practically everything originates from our end of the table, that is, with Lord Robert Cecil and the President, I acting as adviser. The President excels in such work. He seems to like it, and his short talks and explanation of his views are admirable. I have never known anyone to do such work so well. Personally, I dislike working over details. After the broad, general lines are agreed upon, I am always willing to turn the finishing touches over to others. The President, in my opinion, lays too much stress on these details. It is not a hard and fast trade we are making with one another, and a more flexible instrument might be better than a rigid one. It is the spirit of the Covenant that counts more than the text." House's observations about Wilson's willingness to get into details is interesting, especially in light of the repeated accusations from contemporaries and historians alike that Wilson was a man of ideas, but not of specifics, an approach which drove his peers and counterparts crazy. So vague had Wilson been on the League of Nations idea that in the previous December, Jan Smuts, the South African delegate, and one of two British representatives on the League of Nations commission, had drafted... A practical suggestion, as the document was called, which set down the guiding principles and structure of the League. Wilson accepted Smuts's suggestions as his own, which flattered the South African, but which also made conversing with him and his fellow British delegate Robert Cecil an easier task than conversing with any other delegates. It was therefore little surprise that in the League of Nations Commission meetings, British and Americans sat side by side and worked out most of the details before they were brought before the commission. A major criticism levelled at Wilson's performance during the Peace Conference is that his single-minded pursuit of the League left him vulnerable, not least because so few American delegates were willing to accept his vision of the League without compromises. Wilson wanted his vision of the League, and no other, to be the final version which was adopted. After some initial opposition, the different delegations accepted, but conditionally. Instead of attempting to drive a hard bargain and have their own say in how the League would be forged, most simply gave up trying to change the President's mind. This sounds good on paper, it sounds like a victory for Wilson, but what these delegates did instead was fight for their country's interests, and in exchange for their avowed support of Wilson's vision, the President was compelled to grant several concessions to them because he believed that this made up for their earlier concessions, in the League of Nations meetings. No other figure than Robert Lansing, the Secretary of State, handed down this harsh interpretation of the President's behaviour at the Paris Peace Conference. As Lansing wrote in his memoirs, Obsessed with the idea that the organisation of a League of Nations was the supreme object to be attained at the Peace Conference, the President devoted his time, his effort and his influence in drafting its charter and removing or neutralising the objections which stood in the way of its acceptance. At the first, he conferred with the other American commissioners in regard to the Covenant, but on finding them, except possibly Colonel House, more or less sceptical as to the practical operation of the organisation, which he had planned in collaboration with Lord Robert Cecil and General Smuts, and disposed to offer suggestions, materially modifying his plans, he showed that he preferred only the cooperation of those who unreservedly believed in his draft. It was very apparent that he did not desire counsel and criticism, but approval and commendation of the Covenant. It was unfortunate for the President and for the League that he took this attitude as subsequent events proved. As the leader of the Allied powers, with their practical ideas, came to a realisation of the situation, and saw that the President was willing to concede much in exchange for support of the Covenant, they utilised his supreme desire to obtain by barter material advantages for their own nations, From the results of the negotiations, it may be deduced that by clever representations, they gained concession after concession. Wilson may have been single-minded and too agreeable on certain subjects, but as far as the League negotiations went, those involved demonstrated remarkable patience and skill. It was the task of the 19-man commission to create some kind of covenant for the League, which Wilson could bring back with him to the United States by the 14th of February, and much to Cecil's surprise, the ten men from the Big Five and nine from the other powers worked remarkably quickly. They would likely have finished quicker and with less stress, had the French not weighed in so heavily on the debate. If the aforementioned Supreme War Council meeting on the 7th of February that talked about Germany was tense, as Wilson and Clemenceau espoused vastly different views on how to deal with the Germans, Then the fortnight leading up to the signing of the Covenant of the League of Nations demonstrated to the American President that the French might not be such reliable or suitable allies after all. To begin with, Léon Bourgeois, the French delegate to the League of Nations Commission, began making suggestions that the League should have more teeth, perhaps its own general staff or at least an army. Wilson for so long had operated on the assumption that since everyone wanted it, no one would resist whatever judgments it delivered. French suggestions challenged that assumption, which to Wilson meant that they challenged him. But that wasn't all. George Clemenceau had become more vocal in his opposition to certain American ideas. More specifically, his lukewarm enthusiasm for the league as a whole was beginning to show and this was likely fanned by Clemenceau's impression that the British and Americans couldn't always be relied upon to defend French interests. And then, of course, there was the press. A dreadful attack on Wilson in La Figaro, noted Harold Nicholson on the 11th of February. I hear he's furious and threatens to transfer the entire conference to Geneva. It would be a good thing if he did. The feeling against Wilson and the Americans was growing, Nicholson claimed, adding... They loathe the League of Nations and say that Wilson's insistence on its being taken first is delaying the peace. This is nonsense, as it is only being done in the Commission after dinner till midnight, and the rest of the day is perfectly free for the Council of Ten to go ahead with other things. As we will see in the future, the holiday which Wilson had from France and his return in mid-March was effectively a signal that the honeymoon period with the French people was well and truly over. Once the president returned from a mostly unsuccessful publicity and support campaign in the States, he came under the full force of an attack from the French press, who criticised his tone, his ideals and even his wife. This only added to Wilson's difficulties and it also exposed cracks in Wilson's personality. The man was not used to criticism and he was really, really bad at dealing with it, especially the kind launched from the back of the classroom. So the president had thin skin, and we are jumping ahead in our story somewhat. But it should be noted that Wilson, while he was present in the Council of Ten meetings, maintained a certain aura which even his critics, such as men like Robert Lansing, whom he so unfortunately alienated, had to admit was impressive. As Lansing wrote, Mr. Wilson, during the sessions of the Council of Ten, spoke in a low, pleasant voice and without rhetorical effort. As no one rose in speaking, He would lean forward, resting on the arms of his chair, and address his remarks, first to one and then to another of his confreres. With fluency and with perfect diction, he would present his views in sentences so well-rounded that they suggested copperplate perfection. His accuracy of language and his positiveness of assertion not infrequently reminded one of a lecturer imparting knowledge to a class and gave the impression that he felt that what he had said left nothing else to be said. He exhibited the traits of a philosopher rather than those of an advocate. He preferred to deal in generalities rather than with facts. His discourses, though essentially academic, were clear and logical. As to what those that did admire or appreciate Wilson thought, to them the president was not at all a pushover or single-minded in his pursuit of his goals. Lansing recorded Wilson as frequently needing breaks to consult with experts, even after hearing a presentation of a subject for several hours. Yet it is at the same time not hard to find those that would disagree with this interpretation, which begs the question of who do we believe, and as usual, the right answer is probably that Wilson slotted between the two versions of himself, which critics and fans alike saw. One individual, Mr. Thomas W. Lamont, a member of the great banking house of J.P. Morgan & Company, one of the representatives of the United States' treasury, and with the American Commission to Negotiate Peace, gives the lie to criticisms uttered about the President to the effect that he was exclusive, secretive, and refused to confer with those associated with him. Against all these criticisms, Lamont said, I'm going to take this opportunity to say a word in general as to President Wilson's attitude at the peace conference. He is accused of having been unwilling to consult his colleagues. I never saw a man more ready and anxious to consult than he. He has been accused of having been desirous to gain credit for himself and ignore others. I never saw a man more considerate of those of his coadjutors who were working immediately with him, nor a man more ready to give them credit with the other chiefs of state. Again and again would he say to Mr. Lloyd George or Mr. Clemenceau, My expert here, Mr. So-and-so, tells me such-and-such, and I believe he is right. You will have to argue with him if you want to change my opinion. President Wilson undoubtedly had his disabilities, perhaps in a trade, Some of the other chiefs of state would have out-jockeyed him, but it seldom reached such a situation because President Wilson, by his manifest sincerity and open candor, always says precisely what he thought, and he would easily disarm his opponents in argument. President Wilson did not have a well-organized secretarial staff. He did far too much of the work himself, studying until late at night, papers and documents that he should have largely delegated to some discreet aides. He was, by all odds, the hardest-worked man at the conference, but the failure to delegate more of his work was not due to any inherent distrust he had of men, and certainly not any desire to run the whole show himself, but simply to his lack of facility in knowing how to delegate work on a large scale. In execution, we all have a blind spot in some part of our eye. President Wilson's was, in his inability to use men, an inability, mind you, not a refusal. On the contrary, when any of us volunteered or insisted upon taking responsibility off his shoulders, he was delighted. Throughout the peace conference, Mr. Wilson never played politics. I never witnessed an occasion when I saw him act from unworthy conception or motive. His ideals were of the highest, and he clung to them tenaciously and courageously. Many of the so-called liberals in England have assailed Mr. Wilson bitterly because, as they declare, he yielded too much to their own premier, Mr. Lloyd George, and to Mr. Clemenceau but could he have failed to defer to them on questions in which no vital principle was involved? I will remember his declaration on the question whether the Allies should refuse, for a period of five years during the time of France's recuperation, to promise Germany reciprocal tariff provisions. What Mr. Wilson said to Mr. Lloyd George and Mr. Clemenceau was this, Gentlemen, my experts and I both regard the principle involved as an unwise one. We believe it will come back to plague you. But when I see how France has suffered, how she has been devastated, her industries destroyed, who am I to refuse to assent to this provision designed wisely or unwisely to assist in lifting France again to her feet? Further to this extract from Lamont, it is also worth looking at the testimony of Mr. Isaiah Bowman, chief territorial adviser of the Peace Commission, who, as a man we've met before when discussing maps certainly knew his way around the map room and in answer to the direct question was there not a time when it looked as if the peace conference might break up because of the extreme policy of one of the allies he gave the following revealing anecdote yes there were a number of occasions when the peace conference might have broken up almost anything might have happened with so many nations represented so many personalities and so many experts perhaps half a thousand in all Owing to the fact that President Wilson has been charged on the one hand with outrageous concessions to the Allies, and on the other hand that he has always been soft on the Germans, particularly with the Bulgarians, let us see just how soft he was. On a certain day, three of us were asked to call at the President's house, and on the following morning at 11 o'clock we arrived. President Wilson welcomed us in a very cordial manner. I cannot understand how people get the idea that he is cold. He does not make a fuss over you, but when you leave you feel you have met a very courteous gentleman. You had the feeling that he is frank and altogether sincere. He remarked, "'Gentlemen, I am in trouble, and I have sent for you to help me out. "'The matter is this, the French want the whole left bank of the Rhine.' I told Mr. Clemenceau that I could not consent to such a solution of the problem. He became very much excited, and then demanded ownership of the Saar Basin. I told him I could not agree to that either, because it would mean giving 300,000 Germans to France.' Whereupon, President Wilson further said, "'I do not know whether I shall see Mr. Clemenceau again. I do not know whether he will return to the meeting this afternoon. In fact, I do not know whether the peace conference will continue. Mr. Clemenceau called me a pro-German and abruptly left the room. I want you to assist me in working out a solution true to the principles we are standing for, and to do justice to France, and I can only hope that France will ultimately accept a reasonable solution. I want to be fair to Clemenceau and to France, but I cannot consent to the outright transfer to France of 300,000 Germans. A solution was finally found, the one that stands in the treaty today. Thus, Wilson's character, in case we weren't aware, was by no means a straightforward, open and shut case. We have talked before about his convictions, and how they may have been too strong for his own good. It is certainly true that he possessed convictions which may have complicated or delayed the final settlement, but there can be no doubt that Wilson's counterparts did as well. What kind of baggage did George Clemenceau, David Lloyd George, or even Vittorio Orlando bring to the Peace Conference? I would wager most of you accept that the Great War wasn't caused by a single actor. I would hope that you would view the failure of the Peace Conference and then the Treaty of Versailles in the same vein. A failure so catastrophic, so terrible, and so unfortunate was not caused solely by Wilson's arrogant tone or vagueness of vision, nor was it caused by him rubbing the French the wrong way or failing to deal with challengers at home. The failure of Versailles was a failure perpetrated by people, but it was also a failure of the system in which they lived. While the planks had been set in place for the League of Nations, the nails to hold in these planks were crooked, some were hammered in only halfway and some powers hadn't done any hammering of these nails at all. It was going to be a struggle to get this League project across the finish line, but because Wilson believed it was so worth it, he was not going to give up. We should remember, as did his contemporaries, that while often justifiable criticism was lobbed in his direction, Wilson bore the brunt of it not for money, for fame, or necessarily just for adulation. The dream which he envisaged, of a world made safe from war and guided by humanitarian principles, was a dream born a generation too early, so it proved. But nobody, throughout the Paris Peace Conference, thought that this dream was not worth the effort. And certainly, nobody was able to stop the American President from trying, nonetheless.